0: I'm Richard Hollingham, and this time in the Planet Earth podcast, unraveling the mysteries of our ancient ancestors and the wonders of deep sea worms.
1: They look like hair sort of thing, don't yes. they? Yeah, you wouldn't really know. Maybe what...
2: a thin strand from a sweater or something. Yeah, yeah like
1: exactly. That. Well, I hope they're not, because I just. <laughs> yeah.
2: This is rather like
0: Night at the Museum. It's after dark and I'm in the main gallery of the Zoological Museum in Cambridge. Towering above me is a giant sloth skeleton. There are cases of bones, stuffed animals, some sort of pterodactyl overhead. It's slightly spooky. And I'm here to discuss another extinct creature that we owe our very existence to. The first four-legged animals to move from the water onto the land. And with me are Jennifer Clack from the University of Cambridge and Stephanie Pierce from the Royal Veterinary College who recently published new research on the appearance and movement of these animals. And I've got some of these fossils here, Jenny. Just describe them for me. Uh, really just sections, almost sort of hand-shaped stones. But well, what are we looking at?
3: Well, we're looking at part of the head of an animal called ichthyostega. Unfortunately, it's missing the front end. Here we've got some neck vertebrae, and then further back we've got its shoulders and the ribs of the thoracic region. Of the animal. Now, looking at that, I can see, really,
0: with the skeletons around us here in the museum, there's clearly these, these ribs here and in, in, you've got in your right hand and then the other was really just a stone with these, uh, these lines on it which just about fits in the palm of your hand. Are these, are these teeth here? Yes, is this the teeth. head?
3: These are teeth yes, this is the lower jaw here. So this whole creature I suppose is what, cat size, small dog? This one was um, about a metre long when we put it all together with its tail but we have examples that are at least twice as the size of that.
0: So what, uh, kind of metre, two metres, that sort of thing? Mm,
3: that's right, yeah. And
0: at the moment, you look at this, you, I suppose, figure out it's got ribs, it's got these fierce, fierce-looking teeth. But there were a lot of assumptions made about, about this creature, these, these first creatures to, to move out of the water onto
3: land. The first creatures to emerge from the water and start to evolve legs with fingers and toes people assumed that these would have had legs with weight-bearing limbs and that they would have walked in the same way that modern four-limbed creatures walk, like a a lizard, perhaps, or a salamander. And they envisaged these early tetrapods, as we call them, as giant salamander-like creatures. And that's how they were first reconstructed.
0: But there's no reason why they should have been that, other than we can look at animals today and say, oh, that's very similar.
3: That's right. I mean, that was the assumption, that what you see today is what was going on in the past. And as, as a first hypothesis, that's quite reasonable. But what we found is that that wasn't the case at all. So, Stephanie, what did you do?
0: What did you do to these fossils to find out what they were really like?
4: Well, over the last three or four years, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the fossils that are still embedded inside the rock, so fossils that we can't see on the outside. And to do this, we've been using modern technologies. We've been using micro CT scanners. And this one specimen in particular, this one here called Mr. Magic.
0: Mr. Magic, what? Sorry, I've got to ask, why Mr. Magic?
3: This was something that my colleague came up with. He had young children and they were fond of the Mr. Men, so I think just picked that one because it came to to mind. And it is a very nice specimen. Okay,
0: so Mr. Magic. So you looked inside Mr. Magic here.
4: We looked inside Mr. Magic using micro-CT scan data. And what... When we looked at the vertebral column, the the bones of the vertebrae that were still trapped inside the rock, we weren't able to identify all the different parts that were supposed to be there based on what had been described in the literature and in textbooks over about the last hundred years. And so this got us really, really puzzled what was actually going on in the backbone of this animal. And what we decided to do was take it to the European synchrotron radiation facility and create really high-resolution images using synchrotron X-rays. And what we found was something very, very interesting.
0: So you've got a representation of this, what you saw inside this fossil, on the computer screen here in front of us. And it's a three-dimensional representation. And this wasn't what you were expecting. I mean, it's clearly a backbone there. I mean, it clearly looks like... Some, you know, you, anyone could see that that's some sort of backbone, but it's not quite what you are expecting.
4: It's not quite what we were expecting. When you talk about a modern tetrapod backbone, their vertebrae are composed of individual units that are all interconnected, and those units are composed of only one bone. Um, an early tetrapod vertebral column is actually slightly different. It's actually composed of many different bones. And in particular, it's supposed to be, each unit is supposed to be composed of three separate bones. It's supposed to be composed of one bone in the front, which is called the intercentrum, and that's the green bone in the image here. Uh, One bone on the top, which is called the neural spine, and that's the pink bone in the image. And then a pair of little bones at the back called the pleurocentra, which are the yellow bones in this image. But that sort of concept of what an early tetrapod vertebra looked like isn't actually what we found when we did the synchrotron scanning of this fossil.
0: So what did you find? What, what was different about it?
4: Well, some of the bones ended up being fused together. And in particular, the bone at the front, the intracentrum, was actually fused on to the back of the pleurocentra. And this was very unusual because that indicated to us that the first bone in the series, the intracentrum, was actually, in fact, the last bone in the series. And this meant that all the literature and the textbook previously actually had the backbone back to front in these animals.
0: What does this actually tell you about the animal, what
3: what it looked like and and maybe how it moved? One of the things that we we found, you can see represented by a series of blue elements. And the nearest equivalent we can find in modern animals is the sternum, uh, the breastbone which in in most animals is actually a series of segmented bits rather than, as we have, just one bone. But there they were, and that corresponds to the idea that these creatures were not walking with alternating footprints, as you would expect, but actually were using a kind of crutching motion. So using their front legs to kind of hop forwards and then pushing or stabilising with the back legs, because the back legs were paddle-shaped. They weren't walking legs. They didn't have proper knees or ankles. They were stiff and probably were just sort of sitting there in in the mud, used for swimming in the water, but as stabilisers and anchors on land.
0: So based on
3: this study, what do you now know that they look like? Well, one of the changes that uh, has been made in, in our perceptions is that the proportions seem to be quite different from the idea of the inflated salamander that was the usual um, textbook or kiddie's book representation. Its shoulders were relatively enormous, and it had this big rib cage, which then faded out into a rather weak bit of backbone just before where the hind legs fit in. And that's, that's why the specimens all fall apart round about there. And the hind legs were paddles set sort of vertically against the body and the little short stubby tail. So it's really an unusual-looking animal. I suppose if you want to find a modern analogue for how it looked in terms of proportions would be an elephant seal, something like that. Big head, big shoulders, rather diminutive hindquarters. And fearsome teeth. And very fearsome teeth. <laughs> and Stephanie, this
0: ties in with the previous work you've done on this and published on this about the, way they, about the way they move. So we're building up a whole picture about these creatures.
4: That's right. Finding the fact that we had a sternum in this animal was really exciting because the sternum provides support for the chest, which gave us further support for the fact that these animals might have been putting a lot of pressure on their chest. So as Jenny mentioned, if these animals are pulling themselves forward with their front limbs, they would have had their chest in contact with the ground during part of their locomotion cycle. And so having these bones in their chest would have allowed them to put their body weight on the chest and would have allowed them to have a rigid rib cage around them to support their body weight, which is really exciting. So this gives us some insight into the fact that these animals might have been making tentative steps onto land.
0: And that's the point, isn't it? Tentative steps, Jenny, these weren't
3: land creatures. The old idea was that you went straight from a sort of swimming action with fins and then these finned creatures made forays onto land using their fins and those gradually evolved into legs and they used this sort of same lateral bending that you see in fishes and as you also see in in lizards, for example. But it turns out that they were probably exploiting many different kinds of locomotion at the beginning And they weren't all equivalent to walking. There was
0: clearly, though, an advantage in evolutionary terms to being on land, and that ultimately led to to amphibians, to reptiles, to us, I suppose.
3: Yes, that's right. I mean, it's probably a combination of things that led to the transition. Um, Increased food in, in terms of the arthropod faunas, the centipedes and the spiders and things that they could eat an increase in the amount of plant cover that would give them shelter, possibly escape from predators uh, who couldn't make it onto land. Big f- fish predators wouldn't have been able to follow them. Perhaps to bury their eggs. There are all sorts of things you can think of.
0: Jennifer Clack and Stephanie Pearce, thank you both very much. And you can see some pictures of these fierce-looking animals on Planet Earth online. You can also, of course, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. To understand the sheer variety of life in the seas, you have to study all of it, from the tiniest bacteria to the largest fish. And then there's the stuff in the middle, such as bristle or polychaete worms. Letitia Dunton studies these polychaete worms at the Natural History Museum's Darwin Centre in London. Now, the worms can reach up to three metres long, but as Sue Nelson discovered when Letitia brought out some of her collection... There are plenty at the other end of the scale as well.
1: They're quite small. They're actually in ethanol at the moment. So yeah, Good these are... grief they are small. Yeah, they? they're, they're pretty tiny, so they're about couple of millimeters long yeah the smallest ones are about yeah
2: like two millimeters long you would never guess that they were actually worms looking at them with the naked eye because Mm. some of them look like tiny they look a bit like hair sort of thing don't they yeah you wouldn't
1: really know maybe a
2: thin strand from a sweater or something yeah yeah,
1: exactly well I hope they're not Mm. because I just (laughs) yeah (laughs) they're sort of like a a brownish color and a bit like reddy
2: yes there's one small red one in, in there now where did you get these worms from these
1: worms are from the Whittard Canyon which is an underwater canyon in the northeast Atlantic so it's just southwest of Ireland.
2: And how big large is this canyon? It's
1: pretty big it's like um, goes down starts at a depth of 200 meters and goes down to 4,000 meters. These samples were actually collected from 3,500 meters
2: The canyon's about two kilometres long. It's so funny that from such a huge structure, you should be interested in such tiny tiny little
1: worms. Yeah, well, actually, in the deep sea, most of the organisms are tiny because of the amount of food. There's not much food down there. Um, So organisms have adapted to that by becoming very small.
2: So let's have a look at these tiny little polychaete worms under the microscope. Under the
1: microscope now. So I'll just turn this on. Lights come on. Just get this in focus. Right. hope you'll be able to see these parts. Oh, yes. It's very hard to identify them sometimes because of the process of bringing them up that
2: obviously disturbs them a lot. They're almost like thin, white worms, but not so smooth all along in their body, slightly disjointed almost, or is that part of the process? some, Some sort
1: of segments. Well, actually, polychaetes are related to earthworms, that you find in your garden. Earthworms have little hairs on them for movement as well, and so do these polychaete worms. And, yeah, they are quite small, sort of longish. They're all sort of this colour. But they weren't this colour to begin with. They were actually more vibrant colours. It's just the preserving process which
2: makes them all this sort of... Has sort of, of bleached them out yeah, a bit. yeah. So why are you interested in these particular... These
1: particular worms. Well, polychaete's actually very abundant in the deep sea. I've been looking at macrofauna in general. So in the deep sea, when you're looking at deep sea biology, you actually divide animals' organisms up by sort of sizes... So you have the myofauna, which is everything very, very small. Then the macrofauna is a bit bigger, and then the megafauna is a lot bigger. So things like fish, the megafauna is. But I'm concentrating on the macrofauna, and macrofauna are things like polychaete worms, crustaceans such as isopods, amphipods, copepods as well.
2: So if there's so many of them, these must form a. I'm assuming must form a a food source for other items in the sea. Yeah,
1: so probably get megafauna, so the slightly bigger animals grazing on them and everything.
2: And why these in particular? Just because I'm
1: looking at actually species diversity in the deep sea, so I want to understand why there's lots of species in a certain place. I'm working on submarine canyons, underwater canyons, and underwater canyons are thought to be hotspots for species diversities. And for me to sort of properly understand this, I'm looking at the polychaete worms in particular to find if there are lots of polychaete worms Found in these underwater canyons, and at the moment, yes, I found there are lots of polychaete worms in underwater canyons.
2: And are there lots of different species of of these worms in particular? Is much known about them?
1: I think it's twelve thousand species of polychaete worm My goodness identified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite a few identified so far. So the ones that I'm looking at, they're probably, and to be honest, they're probably all unknown species. A lot of them which makes it quite hard for me when I want to understand species diversity if I'm finding lots of species that are unknown. And And
2: when, to my eye, they all looked very similar under the microscope, particularly when they've lost their their colour. How do you... Tell the different species apart. With polychaetes,
1: um, they obviously have the keti, so the keti are the little hairs going all along down the side of the worm. So you can look at the keti and also the prostomium, which is like the head end, so you can see the different shapes of that.
2: Now, one of the ways in which you must compare. What you've got here yeah. with what you've got already in the Natural History Museum yeah. um, must be with the, the collections.
1: Yeah, so the collections are like a really fantastic resource I have here. I'm very lucky. I think there's 8,000 polychaetes in the collections. Well, I think
2: then we ought to go down yeah, to we the. Better. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's go. Yeah. It feels as if we're going into an airlock.
1: Yeah, it's very high
2: security here. <laughs>
1: Well, this is to stop any uh, um, contaminants coming through, like rodents or anything, yeah.
2: Right, it's past cool two well. automatic doors. Yeah,
1: two automatic doors. And as you notice in here, it's actually a bit cooler. Yes, yeah, gosh, yes, quite, quite, quite
2: considerably.
1: Outside, that's to um, help with the preservation of the specimens down here.
2: Now, it's filled with what look like giant filing cabinets. Yeah,
1: just masses and masses of giant filing cabinets. And if I actually open this one here, which says um, polychaete, polychaete worms, that I'm specialising
2: on, Open
1: it up here. And we have all the type specimens and the voucher specimens. So Lots uh,
2: of different shaped jars, glass jars here, all sorts of sizes. Some like the size of like a face cream, some that you'd have little herbs. You'd expect the size yeah, of herbs like, and these spices. These like are sort of like
1: Victorian. Me too. <laughs> and in fact, they probably are Victorian. Some of these are really... Because they do actually have um, collections from Darwin and Cook when... So they're all stored here in the Natural History Museum.
2: Yes, so that one looks very old fashioned with its nice little glass stopper. Yeah, it's stopper got a really nice top little, top well. little stopper
1: and nice labels. Amazing handwriting. I wish my handwriting was <laughs> that good. Yeah, so these um some of the Polychita.
2: How many one, worms yeah. are in that? Because they are so much bigger than the ones that we've looked at, which were the size of a, a, a hare, whereas these are more maggoty sizes. Exactly. Yeah,
1: so there should just be one in here, it's just the type specimen. It's actually from a Challenger exhibition.
2: And, and so you would them. then take this one, say, up to your lab, yeah. look under it and compare with what you've actually got. Exactly,
1: yeah, exactly that, to see if it was the same species.
2: And what do you do when you have found a species that you can't find here in the Natural History Museum yeah. collection? Well,
1: that's... So in my deep-sea biology ones, um, there are a lot of species that won't be here. Um, so what you do is you describe it, so you have to um, like write down all the features, morphological, and now actually there's more moving more to molecular um, so you'd probably sequence it and then get the sequence information, the DNA from that to like, come up with a new species.
0: Letitia Dunton from inside one of the Natural History Museum's collection rooms on polychaete worms and the diversity of marine life. And that's the Planet Earth podcast from the Natural Environment Research Council. I'm Richard Hollingham and from the Museum of Zoology in Cambridge, thanks for listening.